Good morning. What a beautiful day outside. It's really nice to see all of you here. Whether you are a visitor or a longtime member or somewhere in between, we're glad you're with us this sixth Sunday after Epiphany for worship. A few reminders before we begin our service. First, as always, we invite you to silence your phones as a gift to yourself and to your neighbor. Next, we ask that you remain masked throughout the entire service. We are also asking, given the transmissibility of the Omicron variant, that you wear a surgical mask or an N95 or KN95. And we have both of those available in the narthex on the table if you do not have one. We're also going to try something a little different this morning. After the Apostles' Creed, I will invite you to sit or kneel as you feel so moved for the intercessory prayers. And as always, finally, an audio recording of today's service will be made available online if you would like to hear a portion of the service again or know of someone who would. Blessings and curses abound on the sixth Sunday after Epiphany as Jesus preaches his Sermon on the Plain, according to Luke. You will notice that when he speaks to his disciples, everyone is on the same level, a foretaste of what God's upside-down kingdom will bring. You may also notice something strange in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20, our second reading for today. There Paul reveals to his listeners what I call the secret of our salvation. What is this secret, this mystery, and what difference might it make for each of us? We invite you this time, as you are able, please to stand for our gathering hymn, Praise the Almighty, number 877.
The greeting taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is on page three of your bulletin. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. For this holy house, and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Living God, in Christ you make all things new. Transform us by the riches of your grace and use the renewal of our lives as a witness to your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated.
The first reading is from Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. These verses compose a poem that is part of a larger collection of wisdom sayings that contrast two ways of life. Life with God brings blessing. The power and vitality of God is active in our life. Life without God brings a curse, the power of death. A reading from the book of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, test the mind and search the heart to give to all according to their ways, according to the fruit of their doings. Word of God, word of life. Please join in singing the psalm responsively, as noted in your bulletin.
The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. For Paul, the resurrection of Christ is the basis for Christian hope. Because Christ has been raised, those who are in Christ know that they too will be raised to a new life beyond death. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have died. Word of God, word of life. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. Gospel according to St. Luke, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Jesus came down with the twelve and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. All, and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 
Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from God, the source of life, and from Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. I have come to see the resurrection as a kind of burst of divine activity in world history, something unprecedented before Jesus of Nazareth and something as yet to be repeated. I bring that to the second lesson that we read for today, and I do so in trepidation. Here's why. This sermon sounds like a lecture. It was longer in the original draft, and I have tried to shorten it, but it still requires as much attention as you can possibly give. If I can do this, by the end of this message, you will not only understand clearly the main differences between Lutheran and evangelical Christianity, you will also have, I hope, the secret of our salvation. Ready? Here we go. We hear the label constantly. It's in the headlines and in politics, on radio and television, across the internet and all over print media. I am speaking of the word evangelical, and this morning I want to ask, what does this mean? What makes someone an evangelical Christian? One answer comes to us from John Bookeridge, the editor of the British magazine Christianity. To the unchurched and people of other faiths, he writes, Evangelical is increasingly shorthand for right-wing U.S. politics, an arrogant loudmouth who refuses to listen to other people's opinions, men in gray suits who attempt to crowbar authorized version scripture verses into every situation, or happy, clappy simpletons who gullibly swallow whatever their tub-thumping minister tells them to believe. That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? A closer look at Buckeridge's assessment, however, shows us that he's not simply bashing evangelicals. The definition he supplies of evangelical reflects what he thinks the label means to outsiders, that is, to non-Christians. Buckeridge wants people who identify as evangelical to rebrand themselves, not by changing their beliefs, but by changing their name. Why? Because it's bad PR. How can you win souls for Christ if the term you use to describe yourself has such negative connotations? Buckeridge wrote the article I'm citing back in 2006, which seems like so many years ago. But since then, in this regard, really little has changed. Christians and their critics still use the term evangelical. 
Consider the National Association of Evangelicals, or NAE for short. The NAE is a loose affiliation of hundreds of denominations and many other faith-related communities who explicitly identify as evangelical. Instead of abandoning the term, they embrace it. Quote, evangelicals take the Bible seriously and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, its website says, boldly and without apologies. The term evangelical, it continues, comes from the Greek word evangelion, meaning the good news or the gospel. Thus, the evangelical faith focuses on the good news of salvation brought to sinners by Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute, pastor, you might be thinking. This talk about salvation and the gospel sounds a lot like what I believe as a Lutheran Christian. I mean, don't we belong to a denomination that explicitly refers to itself as the evangelical Lutheran church in America? How are we any different? Well, fortunately, thankfully, the NAE provides further clarification. They identify, following the work of the historian David Bebbington, four things all evangelicals have in common. Four things all evangelicals have in common. In the next few minutes, I'm going to offer you a crash course on the basics of Lutheran Christianity by comparing it with the four aforementioned features of evangelicalism. So you might want to take notes. I will then use the last of these features to solve a problem that has plagued me ever since our second reading came up in the lectionary three years ago. I had to wait this long. There, Paul tells us that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, that is worthless, useless, or meaningless, and you are still in your sins. Did you hear that? How on earth, I have wondered, can we still be in our sins if God has already forgiven them on the cross? After all, at least according to the Gospel of John, Jesus' life ends with the words, it is finished or it is accomplished. What else needs to be done? How can Paul say the cross alone won't save us? That's a pickle. Let's see then if we can figure this out. The secret when it comes to our salvation. And along the way, let's unveil or review a few mysteries of the Lutheran faith as well. Ready? Now you can put these on your refrigerator for further reference. The first feature. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who asks you if you've been saved or born again? Oh yeah, I hear back there. If so, you already know the first of the four things evangelicals share in common according to the NAE, conversionism. Conversionism refers to the belief that, quote, lives need to be transformed through a born-again experience and a lifelong process of following Jesus, end quote. 
To be saved from sin and hell, in other words, you must have a conversion experience, one where you must accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior after repenting of your sins. The so-called sinner's prayer gives us the formula. Dear Lord Jesus, it says, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior." End quote. Notice the emphasis which I tried to highlight in my reading. I turn from my sins. You hear that? I invite God to come into my heart. God may make salvation possible, but ultimately I am the one who must decide. It is my responsibility. It's in my hands. Otherwise, God will send me to hell. Now, whenever I talked about hell at the university when I was a professor, I would always point downward because my class, my classroom was over the provost's office. I always thought that was funny. Maybe not. Anyway, God will send you to hell if you, if you choose not to accept Christ. And scripture is clear about this, right? Choose life, we read in Deuteronomy 30, 19, so that you and your descendants may live. Or as James remarks, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. A closer look at Paul's conversion experience, however, reveals a different pattern. As the book of Acts confirms, God is the one who acts first. God revealed himself to Paul through a vision of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. God came to him. God found him. God claimed him. God opened his eyes. God changed his heart. Paul says nothing about how he confessed his sins or accepted Christ. Instead, it was God through Christ who accepted him. And it was from that experience, working backward from the resurrection, that Paul takes to reflect upon for several years as he develops his understanding of sin and salvation. And this was his conclusion. God set me apart before I was even born and called me through his grace. God, Paul says, is the one responsible. Here we can see the difference between evangelicals who emphasize what we must do in response to God and hence who practice believers or adult baptism and Lutherans who emphasize <clears throat> what God has already done for us and hence practice infant baptism. God in this tradition saves helpless infants. God claims them before they can even respond to God's love. While James presumably confirms the evangelical emphasis, <clears throat> Paul and John confirm the Lutheran one. And I'm comparing these two. I'm not passing judgment on either one, but I'm trying to show you the difference. You did not choose me, Jesus says to his followers in John's gospel, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go out and bear fruit, 
fruit that will last, so that my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, obviously, not every evangelical will deny that salvation comes exclusively from God and God's choice. Nor will every Lutheran reject the view that one must say yes to Christ or be born again for salvation. There may be even ways to reconcile these differences, but descriptively, the emphasis stands. For the evangelical Christian, we must convert by our own free will. For the evangelical Lutheran, God converts us through the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. This emphasis on being born again is the first mark of evangelicalism, conversionism. Now let's talk quickly about the other three. Once we know the primary difference between Lutherans and evangelicals when it comes to our role, or lack thereof, in salvation, the other three features of evangelicalism quickly fall into place. Because evangelicals insist upon the need for conversion as a condition of salvation, they seek to save the lost at any cost. They proselytize. They come to your door on Saturday mornings. The NAE calls this kind of sometimes aggressive faith sharing activism. Activism. Now here we Lutherans may have something to learn from our evangelical siblings. In what ways, either through word or deed, might we share our faith with others? I have a, a friend who uses this analogy. He says, Lutherans are great when it comes to the kitchen. They prepare, prepare the best theological dishes. But when it comes to serving people in the dining room, evangelicals are way better. So the question would be, how can we serve folks beyond, uh, beyond the kitchen uh, in ways that allow us to share our faith. Next to activism, evangelicals also practice biblicism, which the NAE defines as a high regard for and obedience to the Bible as the ultimate authority. Following the path blazed by Christian fundamentalists, evangelicals today view the Bible to be without error in all matters of life, including science and world history. Lutherans, at least those affiliated with the ELCA on the other hand, see the word of God as the gospel which one finds in the Bible. Like evangelicals, they affirm the authority of scripture, but in a more nuanced way by taking into account historical context and how that shaped the perspective of, uh, of the various biblical authors. Consider here the perspective of the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a man I refer to as an honorary Lutheran, even though he was Anglican. God will forgive him. The Bible, he writes, is not something that came dropping out of heaven, written by the hand of God. It was written by human beings, so it uses human idiom and is influenced by the context in which whatever story was written. People need to be very careful. Many, he says, believe in the verbal inerrancy of the Bible and speak as if God dictated the Bible when in fact God used human beings as they were and they spoke only as they could speak at the time. There are parts of the Bible, he continues, that have no permanent worth. Martin Luther said much the same thing. 
That is nothing to be sorry about. It is just to say that it is, and I love this, the word of God in the words of men and women. The word of God in the words of men and women. These differences are important to consider. The way we read the Bible has serious implications for how we live in the world, the causes we support, our affirmation or denial of science, and of course, how we vote. The most important characteristic of evangelicalism for our purposes today, however, is the final one. So we've talked about conversionism, activism as a consequence of conversionism, and biblicism. What is the final one? Well, the NAE calls it crucicentrism. That's a fun word. Crucicentrism refers to the emphasis evangelicals place on the sacrifice of Jesus through his death on the cross. He died for your sins. Of course, the cross also has a central place in the Lutheran faith. We, too, proclaim that Jesus died for our sins, not necessarily as a payment to satisfy God, but as a victory over powers inimical to God, in particular sin and death. Yet notice what I just said. Sure, the cross saves us from sin, but how on earth can it save us from death? The short answer is that it can't, at least according to Paul. Now, this is where you really need to brace yourself because I'm walking on very thin ice here. But I hope you heard what I just said. According to Paul, the cross alone cannot save us ultimately from death. So what does Paul say? Well, a little background helps here. According to Paul in our second reading, those who deny the resurrection of Christ render the Christian faith meaningless or futile. He writes, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, why would Paul or anyone, I'm sorry, why would someone say such a thing? Who would deny the resurrection of Christ among the Christians in Corinth? I gave the answer in my sermon from last week. It was those darn Greeks. For the Greeks, the main problem was not sin. It was death. Was there nothing after this life, they wondered, fearing annihilation? There is, the Greek philosopher said. The body is simply a prison, one wrote, something you cast off like a skin of snake after you die. But the soul, the soul lives on forever. Of course, the Greek Christians in Corinth did not entirely deny the resurrection. They simply spiritualized it. They believed they had already been raised in this life. The body accordingly meant nothing. It could be trashed. It was an unworthy inheritor of the immortal soul, which of course created a serious problem. For one thing, the Greeks had no actual basis for assuming the soul would survive the death of the body. And if it did, moreover, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was totally unnecessary. Why? Because the soul already survives death, according to Greek philosophy. Moreover, belief in the soul's immortality was merely an opinion. 
The resurrection of Christ, on the other hand, transformed survival after death from a theoretical possibility to a real one. I experienced it, Paul says, and not just me, but many others. Christ had opened the gate to something more in this life, yes, but also in the world to come. In other words, it's not enough to say Jesus died for our sins. It's his resurrection that validates and completes his work on the cross, saving us from sin and death. The two go together. The two should not be separated. Without the resurrection, our destiny is the grave, and God accomplished nothing in Christ on the cross. As Paul says in verse 17, we accordingly remain in our sins. The reasoning is this for Paul. Resurrection is the basis of our faith. If God couldn't raise Jesus from the dead, what makes us think God could forgive our sins on the cross? Once we grasp the central importance of the resurrection, and I've only got 45 more minutes, don't worry. How without it, how without the cross, let me start that again. Once we grasp the central importance of the resurrection, how without the cross is just, how it is without the cross just another tragedy, passages in the New Testament we may have overlooked suddenly light up. In Romans 10.9, for example, Paul indicates that if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says nothing about resurrection, nothing about believing he died for your sins. He says nothing about crucifixion. Or as the author of 2 Timothy 2.8 says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel. He too says nothing about the crucifixion. While the cross certainly highlights the sacrificial nature of Christ's death, as well as how God can be present to us in and through our suffering, it cannot, pardon the expression, stand on its own. I wrote that for Joel. We must preach Christ crucified and risen. This, dear friends, is the secret of our salvation. The resurrection validates and confirms what Christ did on the cross. Without it, the cross is a tragedy and his death means nothing. Wow. Like Paul, Martin Luther recognized the resurrection as the ultimate foundation of Christian faith and hope. We heard the story last week. When his daughter died at the age of 13, Luther was understandably absolutely devastated. At the funeral, however, he stood up and with boldness through tears shouted, there will be a resurrection. He said nothing about the immortality of the soul, which would make, again, the resurrection unnecessary, nor did he mention the cross. Only the resurrection can save his daughter from eternal death. Listen, Paul proclaims 1,500 years earlier, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. 
Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? This, dear friends, is the secret of our salvation. Resurrection is the basis of our hope. It confirms the presence of God prior in the crucifixion. When you are in doubt, cling to it. When you are in grief, remember it. And when you are in fear, trust it. Hallelujah. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Amen. Let us confess together the words of the Apostles' Creed as found in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. At this time, I invite you to sit or kneel for prayers, whichever speaks to you. We continue with our prayers. The Spirit of the Lord is poured out upon us in abundance. We accordingly pray boldly for the church, the world, and all that God has made. Blessed are those whose trust is in you, loving God. Strengthen the faith of those who profess your name and bring reassurance to those who doubt or fear. Through your church, speak continued blessing into the world. Lord, in your mercy. Those who trust in you are like trees planted by streams of water. Bless fruit trees with an abundant harvest. Help us protect rainforests from destruction. Restore land that has eroded after deforestation and resurrect woodlands after forest fires. Lord, in your mercy. Search the hearts of those who govern, that they lead with humility. Inspire leaders to collaborate on policies that protect people and the planet. Sustain truth-tellers and social movements that challenge society to become more honest and just. Lord, in your mercy. Send your blessings of mercy upon those who long for consolation. Tend to those struggling with poverty, unemployment, or uncertainty. Provide for all who are hungry. Console those who face persecution. Grant peace to all who suffer. Lord, in your mercy. Renew this congregation in our shared mission. As we plan and dream for the future you are preparing, inspire us by the examples of Martin Luther and all the reformers. Bless new projects and new opportunities for our ministry. Lord, in your mercy. For whom or what else do the people of God pray? Hear our prayer. Gracious God, we pray for everyone gathered here this morning that. You help us as we face challenges in our lives to confront them with courage and faith. We pray especially for Awatosh, Almaz's mother, and her brother Mulugeta, for Yvonne, for Mindy, for Peter, for the Moody family, for Jean, Ben, Lee, Jim, Deb, Ken and Ellen, Mary, Jan, 
Barb, Carol, Barbara, Ruth, Denny, and Hildy. Lord, in your mercy. Christ is raised from the dead, and so we cling to the hope of the resurrection. We praise you for the lives of the saints who lived and died in the hope of eternal life with you. Lord, in your mercy. Since we have such great hope in your promises, O God, we lift these and all of our prayers to you in confidence and faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please rise now as you are able for the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is indeed right our duty and our joy that we should at all times and in all places give thanks and praise to you, almighty and merciful God, through our Savior Jesus Christ. By the leading of a star he was shown forth to all nations. In the waters of the Jordan you proclaimed him your beloved son, and in the miracle of water turned to wine, he revealed your glory. And so with all the choirs of angels, with the church on earth and the hosts of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people, for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. Lord, inspire us to work toward your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread 
and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. All baptized Christians are welcome to the Lord's table. If you wish to receive communion this morning, I invite you at my direction to take the bread and drink the wine. Receive the bread of life. Christ is among us. This is his body given for you. And this is his blood shed for you. Let us pray. We give you thanks, gracious God, for the love you show us in this meal. Send us to bring good news to a hurting world and to proclaim your favor to all, strengthened with the richness of your grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated for announcements. Once again, welcome. If you are a visitor, we invite you to fill out a blue pew card, and, or actually not a blue one, but a yellow pew card in front of you. Uh, you may also do so if you wish to receive, uh, or if you have a prayer request, wish to receive the newsletter, etc. So again, welcome everyone here. My goal in preaching in some ways is simply to bring out elements of the service that we might have overlooked. So if I've done what I believe I'm called to do, all that means is that when you see the line resurrection of the body in uh, the Apostles' Creed, you think about it, and you think about what it means to affirm the resurrection of the body as opposed, say, to the immortality of the soul and why that matters. The same is true with the Lord's Prayer. We've been using the version that comes from Luke's Gospel to invite you to think more deeply about what we're asking for in the prayer. We will return to the other version of the Lord's Prayer uh, beginning with Lent. But for this season, I wanted you to have this alternative to think about it more deeply. A few, uh, a few things to share just briefly from the bulletin. First of all, um, if you are a visitor, um, please be sure you've left a contact phone number or email uh, to ensure we can re reach you if uh, there's a need for contact tracing. 
Uh, we thank Dr. Lynn Hofstede, who gave an awesome presentation this morning on bold women of the Bible. It, it certainly taught me a few things. Our next uh, uh, speaker during a forum will be Dr. Matt Whitlock, also from Seattle University, New Testament professor. He'll be uh, talking about commensurate with Lent, uh, crucifixion, which he calls theater of the absurd. So I invite you to that as well. It'll be at 9 to 10, beginning March 6th in the conference room. Next Sunday, I'll preside, but Pastor Christy Daniels uh, will be our guest preacher. She will also join uh, the women for the uh, annual Women's Lenten Breakfast. Uh, information about that is also in your bulletin. Uh, a few uh, final things. Uh, as you all know, uh, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, I mentioned him in my sermon, uh, passed away uh, um, at the, uh, toward the end of December. We will be commemorating his life through a midweek Lenten series called Stillness, Silence, and Song, where we'll be drawing on quotations from Tutu on how to live a more spiritual life. This will be a briefer service um, after Ash Wednesday, again, beginning the Wednesday after Ash Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., same time, and we really encourage you to consider it. It'll give you a chance, and all of us, really, to, uh, to delve more deeply into our spiritualities. Are there any other announcements for the good of the congregation? Then I have a special surprise. I wanted formally to uh, invite outgoing members uh, on council to stand. Is there anybody here who has served uh, their term? Okay. Uh, in spirit, then, we thank you uh, for your service. Now I'd like to invite new or continuing members of council to stand for a two-minute uh, installation. You don't even need to move from your, pulp, your pew. Just stand where you are, please. The following people, those standing, have been elected uh, by the congregation to positions of leadership. We give thanks for their willingness to serve. In baptism, we are welcomed into the body of Christ and sent to share in the mission of God. We rejoice now that these sisters and brothers will lead us in our common life and our mutual mission as a congregation. A reading from 1 Corinthians. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and these are varieties and there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is, it is the same God who activates all of them and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Members of council, I'll ask you to respond by saying, I will, and I ask God to help me. On behalf of your sisters and brothers in Christ, I ask you, Will you accept and faithfully carry out the duties of the offices to which you have been elected? I will, and I ask God to help me. Members of the congregation, I invite you to respond in kind. People of God, I ask you, will you support these who are elected leaders, and will you share in the mutual ministry that Christ has given to all who are baptized? We will, and we ask God to help us. Now it's official. I declare you installed as officers of the congregation's council 
Almighty God bless you and direct your days and deeds in peace that you may be faithful servants of Christ and a warm thank you from all of us for the service you are providing. It is much appreciated. Thank you. You may be seated. We close now with the benediction. Please rise as you are able. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Our sending hymn is Obide, O Dearest Jesus, number 539.